After my heart attack, cash from active care meant I had choices. When I had cancer, cash from active care meant I didn't need to stress so much about money. What is active care? Active care is a supplemental health insurance policy that offers protection for covered cancer, heart attack, or stroke and a choice of cash benefit options from $10,000 to $60,000. If you're diagnosed with cancer, a heart attack, or stroke, you could end up paying thousands of dollars or more in out-of-pocket medical bills. Active Care gives you protection at an affordable price. So get Active Care for cash, choice, and control. Active Care is brought to you by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company and is underwritten by Washington National Insurance Company. Visit colonialpen.com for more information. This is a limited benefit policy. This policy has limitations and exclusions. For costs and complete details of coverage, visit colonialpen.com. Hello, my name's Marcus Speller from the Football Ramble and welcome to the Mixer Podcast. This is the first episode in an eight-part series to coincide with the release of The Mixer, a book written by one of our panellists, Michael Cox, to coincide with the Premier League's 25th season. The book charts the story of Premier League tactics over that period from Route 1 to False Nines, um, out now, of course, in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. And Michael will be joining me in each episode. Hello, Michael. Hello, Marcus. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. I mean, it's quite crucial because you uh, it is your book, of course. Yeah, it's handy. It's handy. <laughs> well, um, every episode will be joined by another guest in uh, something of a squad rotation system, if you will. Today, we're joined by Tom Williams, who is the London sports correspondent for AFP, the French equivalent of the Press Association. He's had a Glenn Hodlesque spell in France, if you will, before returning to Britain. Now spends his time travelling up and down the country covering Premier League games. Hello, Tom. Hello, Marcus. Lovely to have you here as well. Thank you for having me. Um, so then, Michael... You've written this book. Um, you must be fairly well equipped with some in-depth Premier League knowledge by now. Uh, yeah, I've spent a year essentially just watching old Premier League games and reading often very tedious autobiographies of former Premier League stars. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many players have autobiographies that have kind of been lost uh, to the wilderness, apart from on kind of sure. Amazon's second-hand section. So a lot of useless knowledge. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, what's the most obscure tale you've got for us from some of these perhaps tedious books or, or your own findings? Uh, most obscure, or one of my favourite tales is the fact that uh, when Gianfranco Zola arrived at Chelsea, mm. he was so astonished by how poor the equipment was at uh, Chelsea's uh, <laughs> training ground and he wanted to practice free kicks. Yeah. And so he ended up buying his own mock defensive wall have had it delivered to Chelsea's training ground and spent the morning assembling it and then would stay behind after training every day to practice. But that's that's, that's quite how bad things were yeah. in the early days of uh, the Premier League era for Chelsea. Players had to buy their own mock defensive wall. It worked because he scored the joint most free kicks in Premier League history alongside one David Beckham. That is it. That so is it paid in, off. That is incredible, isn't it? I remember Fabrizio Ravanelli when he went to Middlesbrough. Apparently, the, there was no training in the afternoon. He couldn't believe it, so he used to fax back as it was in those days. Although football clubs do like a fax machine, and uh, it, he would need to get more training drills sent to Middlesbrough for him because he felt this was just <laughs> yeah. it was a part-time job almost. He couldn't believe yeah. it. You know, incredible. But that's the interesting thing about Ian Wright. Always says that when he had that trial yeah. at Palace. He was amazed the players just went home at lunchtime. Mm. And he said he got so good because he was used to being on a building site and 
Just stay behind and practice. Absolutely. A man you know well, of course. I don't need to tell you in right stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm sure some of the listeners may not, but um, always worth a mention for Ian Wright. And um, well, each episode of this podcast is themed according to a certain position. We'll be discussing the evolution of various roles in a football side over the course of the Premier League's 25 years. And for episode number one, we're talking about number ones, the goalkeepers. Michael, it was a fundamental change to goalkeeping, which essentially marked the start of the Premier League era, you'd say. Yeah, well, everyone talks about how football didn't begin in 1992 because of the Premier League era, but what did happen in 1992 was uh, the back pass change. Yes. And if you go back and you look at one of the games from Euro 92, any of the games, but particularly the final when Denmark beat uh, Germany 2-0, the extent to which Denmark time-wasted in that game by just knocking the ball around at the back mm. and passing it back to Schmeichel. There's one instant in the closing minutes where one of the Danish forwards dribbles over the mm-hmm. halfway line, is fouled dusts himself down, turns around and fires the free kick 60 yards back to Schmeichel. <laughs> he picks it up and they just did this the whole game. Yeah. Um, and the fact that goalkeepers could no longer do that meant they had to become comfortable in possession. Defenders had to become comfortable in possession. Mm-hmm. The game quickened. It just became a more entertaining game. And I think that, as much as the start of the Premier League era, is why 1992, for all of Europe, well, all of the world, is quite a crucial cut-off point. We forget about the the, uh, the, the revolutionary uh, back pass rule. You know, it's so standard these days. But but what a what a what a difference it's made to the game, really. Tom, um, would you say that Peter Schmeichel is still the best goalkeeper of, of the Premier League era? I think so. Mm. Um, uh, I think on the one hand, you've got the fact that he was a, a stupendous goalkeeper, very mm. successful, won everything possible really with Manchester United but also he was a real goalkeeping revolutionary his background had been in handball um, and so you've mentioned the starfish save earlier on that was his trademark that you now see so many goalkeepers um, incorporate into into their their technique as goalkeepers that wasn't something that we'd seen to quite the same extent Mm -hmm. and I think in this country there are a lot of sort of hang-ups about goalkeepers that you can sort of trace back to the school playground almost, like the fat kid who gets picked last or, you know, the, you know, the little chubby guy who's no good, I'll stick him in goal. And, and Schmeichel showed that being a goalkeeper didn't mean being this sort of, you know, timorous figure quivering on the goal line, mm-hmm. waiting for the ball to come to you. He was a very aggressive goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he described himself in his early days at Manchester United as a very wild goalkeeper because he felt that it, if the ball was in the penalty area, anywhere within the penalty area he was within his rights to go and claim it. And he was quite an exciting player to watch, therefore. Yeah, well, very dynamic. I mean, I, I remember one of his one of my favourite saves uh, of all time was a, a Peter Schmeichel double save. They were, they were, United were playing away at Everton in, I think, the 93-94 season, possibly the season before. Uh, and he blocks a shot, I think, from Preki. Uh, doesn't block it all too well, and the ball sort of bounces out to the edge of the box. Someone comes in for a follow-up shot, possibly Graham Stewart. Um, I should have checked who all these people were before I decided to talk <laughs> I'm, about I'm this. I'm going to question you on that. <laughs> uh, and whoever this guy is winds up a shot, and um, as he's sort of like cocking his leg to shoot, Schmeichel is, is upon him, mm. f- leaping, you know, three or four yards off the ground, full mm. on starfish, and the ball leaves the Everton player's foot, and within about two yards, it struck Schmeichel's chest mm. and ricocheted out for a throwing. And no sooner had he made the first block, he was just sprinting out. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we'd seen that in this country. A goalkeeper who was so aggressive uh, and, and, and employing those, those techniques that he'd, he'd taken from, from handball, you know, about making yourself big. And, and you see, you know, a lot of goalkeepers, you know, Joe Hart is someone who I've seen make a lot of saves like that. Kasper Schmeichel, you would expect that, being Peter Schmeichel's son. Of course. Um, Jordan Pickford is another one. I mean, I, I think I mean, these are guys who will have 
seen Schmeichel during their you know early years as football fans um, and have incorporated that into their own game. Yeah, he was he was one of the stars of um, those great Manchester United sides in the nineties under Alex Ferguson, of course. And, and Michael, he you know for, for you know as Tom said, for a goalkeeper to be one of those players to take centre stage was was maybe quite a new thing for some football fans, wasn't it in England? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, when I think back to Schmeichel, I think as much about his distribution as anything else. Mm. Really long overarm throws and the way United played with Giggs and Konchelskis on the flanks. Oh yeah. He was, you know, he was the first attacker. He was almost a playmaker in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even the fact that he, you know, maybe this is just the kind of age I am, but I'd never seen a goalkeeper go downfield to challenge for corners in the last minute if a team were losing. <laughs> yeah, right, same for me. And now it's fairly standard. Like if a team are losing, you think, is the keeper going to come up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably most of the time they do. Mm-hmm. And of course he scored against uh, Rota Volgograd in the UEFA Cup. That's right, yeah. And I remember he scored, well, he scored... Uh, in inverted commas, against oh. Wimbledon in a cup game, I think. It was. I think it was a cup game away it at Wimbledon. Yeah, but he was offside. A, a heck of a goal. Yeah, like an really, overhead really kick. Sort of weird, like, like, you know, scissors yeah. volley. But what was it? it was ruled out for offside. For offside, <laughs> a, yeah, a, yeah. A goalkeeper scoring a goal being ruled out for offside. What, what on earth? Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable. And I think it's probably fair to say, I mean, these days we're used to having amongst the best players in the world in the Premier League. But in the first season, mm. he was probably the only player in the Premier League who could have a genuine claim to being the best in his position in the world. And I think that was that was quite a novelty at the time. We weren't used to players of that calibre. But he, he'd found that form at Manchester United, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously he was a decent keeper, hence they signed him. But he wasn't a superstar that came in. Mm-hmm. He became a superstar when he was playing in England um, as well. Also, um, you mentioned uh, his red nose earlier. I mean, when he used to bark at the defence... There was a guy who would take charge, and and no matter who had the captain's armband, Schmeichel was like another captain on the pitch. Tom, mm, yeah, yeah, very much so, and mm. he had that 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 natural authority. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, Roy Keane spoke about this a little while ago, and he said that he basically thought it was absolute nonsense. Schmeichel bawling at his defenders, and it was, and <laughs> it tended to be the case that the more spectacular the save he'd made, the louder he'd shout at people. And I think part of it, I think part of it was showmanship. I think part of it was how he motivated himself. Mm. And, and Roy Keane's complaint was that it was if he was saying, oh, you know, look what I'm having to deal with. Look at the fires I'm having to put out because of, you know, these guys in front of me not doing their job properly. Um, and Schmeichel himself has spoken about how important the psychological element was in his approach to goalkeeping. The idea of getting in the striker's head, of being this slightly maniacal figure, mm. flying around the box, charging out for crosses, big starfish saves in one-on-ones and he wanted every opponent to know that that was his penalty area and I think that I think the balling and the screaming at his defenders uh, I think that was I think that was all part of it yeah very true Uh, one of his I suppose if you would call a goalkeeping rival in the 1990s who had a similar kind of um, stature um, was a household name as well was the Arsenal keeper David Seaman Michael um, the famous ponytail the moustache and all but when I think David Seaman I think penalty saves yes. great penalty yeah. stopper for England and for, for Arsenal as well yeah I remember him at the time talking about how he had a formula based upon the I think it was based upon the the player's hip position about where they were going to shoot there was a game against Sampdoria in the Cup Winners' Cup, where That's I think right. he saved three mm-hmm. Euro 96. Obviously, he made a couple of crucial Although stops. the German players' hips clearly lied to him that night. because <laughs> yeah, uh, you it's, know, t- but it's always exempt, isn't it, when, when Germany and penalty shoot, that's a concern. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the the interesting thing with Schmeichel and Seaman was that they were kind of complete opposites. I mean, Seaman was very calm, very placid. Mm-hmm. I think in certain 
respects, he was better than Schmeichel. I think his positioning was probably better than Schmeichel. It's a bold, it was a bold claim. He, he never really made spectacular saves, Seaman. He was he was the kind of player. I mean, Schmeichel. Actually, going through looking at the videos, I'd kind of forgotten that Schmeichel actually made quite a lot of mistakes, often with kicking, um, often with just sort of really strange things you wouldn't expect from a goalkeeper of his caliber. Mm. Seaman, until the end of his career, didn't really make that many mistakes, but he never. He was kind of solid. He wouldn't make the spectacular saves that Schmeichel would. You wouldn't describe him as agile. No, no. But I think his positioning was absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, and and towards the end of his career, he did make a, a few mistakes, but he went on very long. Oh, and, a, and a save that I can remember quite late on his career was that save against Sheffield United in the semi-final where he, he had that reach. And, and, and Seaman did that a couple of times. There was a save against Scotland where it looked for all intents and purposes it was going in and that big arm of his almost scoops the ball away from the line to safety, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to criticise Seaman, I think he would occasionally be a little bit flat-footed. He had that, you know, there were an unfortunate number of times he was lobbed. I mean, and, and again, I mean, like the, <laughs> the naive goal. Uh, Arsenal fans won't thank you for saying that. But I mean, it's it, and it's unfortunate. I mean, you look at those goals. I mean, I don't think he could have done anything about the naive goal. I don't think he could no. have done anything about the Ronaldinho goal. But those were the sort of things that we mm-hmm. associated Seaman with. Um, I think his kicking was 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 pretty good for a goalkeeper at, at, at that time, and certainly better than Schmeichel's. Mm-hmm. I think he was more comfortable, you know pinging the ball around to, you know, to members of his back four. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, fantastic reflexes. I think perhaps shots down around his feet he you know, perhaps wasn't as comfortable with, but certainly anything that, that depended on reflexes is the, the save from, you know, from, from Paul Pesky Solido demonstrated. Although I do have <laughs> slightly controversial opinion about great saves, which uh-huh. is I think basically any goalkeeper in the world, any top goalkeeper could make any of the great saves. The difference is just finding yourself in that in that position, which goes to what goes back to what Michael said about Siemens' positioning. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's so utterly crucial, and I, I understand what you mean because often some keepers are described as great shot stoppers, but suggest that they're not solid. To use that word that we often talk about with goalkeepers, Michael. Yeah. Well, I get. Yeah, I understand what Tom means. The ball has to be in a certain place for it to be a great a great save if yeah. it's a little bit closer to you then it's just a standard save yeah sure I completely understand what you mean mm. and with those two keepers Schmeichel and Seaman both uh, you know stalwarts for their, their clubs and countries both clubs struggle to replace them really which is often a sign of a, of a good goalkeeper and shows the longevity Tom because I mean Schmeichel we know Manchester United took a while and it was not until really Van der Sar came along and, and you could even argue that Arsenal never properly replaced someone like David Seaman in that side. You know, Arsenal, Arsene Wenger's goalkeeper woes have been quite long and um, protracted, you know, perhaps until Peter Cech came along. Yeah, I mean, certainly Arsenal since Seaman, you know, they didn't have anyone in the same bracket until Cech came in. And, you know, they got Cech at a very good time and, and I don't think he's quite been worth the 15 extra points a season that, that John Terry said he would be when he mm-hmm. left. But I think, you know, from a psychological perspective, there is no longer this thought of, you know, oh, you know, what's what, what's the keeper doing? You know, like, can we afford to, you know, to, to, be, to be letting letting the opponents, you know, even having speculative shots from 25 yards? Whereas if you've got a top goalkeeper like David Seaman or Petr Cech, you know that, you know, you're, you're going to be OK in that respect. And yeah, I mean, Man United after Schmeichel, it was, I mean, it was, you know, all sorts of, of, of hapless goalkeepers. You had Bosnich, Massimo Taibbi, Bartes. you know, the ill-fated Bartes. I mean, and Bartes was actually looked initially as if he might yeah. end up being a long-term successor to Schmeichel. And then, and he was a slightly erratic goalkeeper mm-hmm. with a very unique skill set. Um, a huge booming kick that he had, extremely agile, was someone who, you know, would command his penalty area very well, also took a lot of risks. And as his United career went on, 
he became more and more error prone and looked less and less like the great goalkeeper he, he'd seen when mm-hmm. he first arrived. You had the Tim Howard, Roy Carroll phase. Um, <laughs> Thomas Kushak came in for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and towards the end of this period, Edwin van der Sar's playing in goal for Fulham. Which is remarkable to think. Um, you know, I think he, he went straight to Fulham from Juventus, he didn't did, he? Yeah. It's very yeah. curious sort of mid-career hiatus and then returns to Man United and becomes one of the best goalkeepers in Europe again. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about van der Sar was everyone kind of thinks, hang on, what was he doing at Fulham? But he'd had such a bad spell at Juventus. Mm-hmm. And I remember that summer, quite a lot of top European clubs were looking for a goalkeeper and bought goalkeepers. But he was playing so badly that no one really wanted him. And so he had this really weird career where his peaks were kind of 95 with that classic Ajax side. And then 2008, 2009, and I'd say even up until 2011 when he retired, he was outstanding that season. Mm. His last season to go out as one of the best in your position in Europe at the age of, I think, 39 by that Mm. point, was absolutely incredible. I mean, his last game was a Champions League final, wasn't it? Yes, which was unfortunate because he... you know, I wouldn't say he made mistakes for the goals, but it wasn't a grand way to go out. Yeah, I mean, there was one goal, I think, when Messi scored for the second. He might have done a bit better, but overcoming Pep Guardiola's Barcelona in those days yeah. was never <laughs> was never an easy feat. Um, mentioning some of those Manchester United goalkeepers, um, poor old Massimo Taibi. He would never be remembered fondly in this country. Well, he might do by Liverpool and Manchester City fans, you know, but uh, <laughs> but but certainly not from Manchester United fans. And, and, and it's an obvious question to ask, but I have to ask, Michael, favourite goalkeeping Gaff. My favourite goalkeeping gaff. Or a memorable one, because maybe yeah. not favourite, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's not one that's a massive mistake, but it's the kind of classic uh, when Shea Given had the ball against Coventry and he rolled it out and <laughs> yeah. Dion Dublin ran around him almost from the stands yeah. to poke the goal. It was just sounded like a classic comedy area. It could, again, it could kind of happen to most goalkeepers. Was he a bit unlucky? Because didn't Dion Dublin stay off the pitch? Yes. And, and actually yeah. should have probably been called up on that. Well, it was, I think a cross had just come in towards the back post. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it was a free kick, wasn't it, given, yeah. given was taking. And a lot of players had gone up for it. And Dublin's momentum had carried him off the pitch. So right, it wasn't okay. like he'd sort of, you know, crept off yeah. surreptitiously. But he didn't have to sort of sit in the front row and read the paper for a couple of minutes and then, you know, <laughs> whatever well, he you're did. Not, you're not allowed to leave the, the field, True, are you? Yeah. So uh, I don't know, maybe maybe he should have been pulled up on it. But the best thing was because, they were, I mean, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have worked if that had been an away game because... The crowd would have told him that he was there, but instead, <laughs> Highfield Road sits there, yeah. sees exactly what's going to happen, mm. and there must have been a little. Oh, hang on, what's what's Dion doing? And the funny thing, you watch it. I, I watched it. I saw it again recently. Given doesn't even react. Yeah. There have been a few of those. Robbie Keane scored one. I forget who the goalkeeper was. Goalkeeper rolls it out, and Robbie Keane just darts in from behind him. Keeper panics. Given doesn't even move. He's just so totally stunned <laughs> to see you know Dion Dublin come around the corner. And score. That, that doesn't count, surely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Tom, a favourite gaff you can think of? Um, top of your head? I'm I'm going to go for one. It's not an obvious one because it didn't result in a goal. But the Roy Carroll, Pedro Mendes game. Oh, oh yeah, good one. Good when one. He's, mm. When he spilt that that speculative halfway line punt yeah. from Pedro Mendes over the line. And obviously we remember that now for the fact that the goal was not given, mm. despite the ball being a yard behind the line. Mm-hmm. But if you if you focus on the error itself, it is a preposterous error. Oh, it's a shocker. I mean, Men- uh, Carroll's come out to clear a ball outside his box. OK, maybe he's disorientated. Yeah. I, you know, I'll give him that. But by the time the ball is is dropping out of the you know the sky towards him he's back in position it arrives at chest high it mm-hmm. should be one of the most comfortable saves he's ever made his I don't position, know whether he was his position it was very good to get back couldn't fault it. his position and somehow a ball that should be an easy chest height catch 
somehow ends up in the yeah. net. Like, absolutely extraordinary. It's hard to catch a ball behind you like yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah. It's quite incredible. He could have chested it down. Yeah. He, could, yeah. he could have taken a touch. He could have done a scorpion kick. All, he could all, have all done. the time in the world. Yeah. He somehow shoveled it into his own net. And I, I think had he not got away with it, I think we'd remember that as, as the greatest goalkeeping gaffe of the Premier League era. Yeah. You know, the Man United goalkeeper basically throwing one in yeah. um, from like a 50-yard punt. I mean, extraordinary save. But then it goes down as a great recovery save, technically yeah. speaking. Well, the funniest thing as well is he swipes and he has two little guilty looks at the linesman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he like knew. One, two. Oh, I've got, I've got, I've got yeah. away with that. Okay. Yeah. Come on, lads. That's it. Because <laughs> he was lucky the linesman was miles away, wasn't he? He was yeah. 50, you know, on the halfway line or whatever. Yeah, yeah. my goodness. Um, as we go through the years of these you know, Manchester United goalkeepers, and, and there's a few Arsenal goalkeepers, of course, came after David Seaman, um, the aforementioned Peter Cech stands out. And the next goalkeeping generation sort of arrived a little bit later, if you, if you will. Peter Cech coming in at Chelsea and Pepe Reina at Liverpool, um, who, who was a decent keeper, very popular with the Liverpool fans, um, Michael. Um, the best clean sheet per game records in Premier League history. Yes, those two. Czech is number one and Rain is number two. Which... That's that is quite because as I as I sort of looked at that, I almost didn't believe it. Yeah, I think uh, Czech is on forty eight percent of games and Rain is on forty six percent of games. They kept a clean sheet, which I think to a certain extent reflects the fact they they played under Mourinho and Benitez, who were managers who were quite defensive minded and created mm-hmm. a very solid back four. I mean, the funny thing about that is Czech's ratio is slightly dropping as he's moved to <laughs> Arsenal. So Rayner may overtake him despite not playing in the Premier League any longer. Yeah. Um, but they were both great goalkeepers, very different, I think. Czech was probably a little bit old school. You wouldn't say he's particularly good with his feet or particularly mm-hmm. good at sweeping, but just really solid. I mean, Reliable. Came, yeah, he, I mean, he came after Euro 2004 when he made um, a couple of fantastic saves for Czech Republic. Mm. And uh, straight away, he kept 25 clean sheets in his first season with Chelsea. That's right. In 38 games, which is ridiculous. Didn't he take the record or something, the uh, the amount of minutes without conceding? I think he did, yeah. Before van der Sar then later got it as well. That's right. And Reyna was maybe, I guess, a more Spanish goalkeeper, literally, but in terms of style, he was better at sweeping. Again, he was very good with his his throws a little bit, like Schmeichel. Um, So they're very different in style again, but, you know, that was... uh, after this kind of uh, Manchester United and Arsenal problems with replacing the goalkeepers, Liverpool and Chelsea became, you know, that was, that's when the big four started as well. And I think part of that was they had such solid goalkeepers. Yeah, with with uh, Pepe Reina, Tom, I, I sort of think of him in a slightly similar bracket to someone like Fabian Bartes. Good goalkeeper, agile, um, good distribution and all. But as Michael says, slightly erratic. And there was a couple of mistakes he made, I think, or, or certainly one away at Goodison Park in a derby. But has a sort of feel-good factor around him with, in terms of teammates. I mean, he's, he's essentially Spain's cheerleader as well because he's the number three and never ever plays. Do, do you see what I mean by Pepe Reina? Or perhaps you disagree? No, no, completely. And I, th- I think that is, I think that's how a lot of people in this country probably think about him. I mean, you, you sort of remember him at, at, at the, the 2010 World Cup and then, you know, I think the European Championship that followed. And, and he was sort of the chief cheerleader. There was that one where he tried to put a Barcelona shirt on Cesc Fabregas <laughs> when they were all standing on stage somewhere. And uh, you know, clearly a, a very, very popular guy. Um, I mean, I'm not sure you describe him as a great goalkeeper, would you? But certainly one of the best goalkeepers that, that, that the Premier League has seen. Um, and again, another goalkeeper who was who was good with his feet at, at a time when it wasn't the absolute be all and end all for goalkeepers, as it you know as it increasingly seems to be. Mm. Um, well, now there's it feels like there's a new generation as well, or a newer generation, a very strong set of goalkeepers in in the Premier League. David de Gea. Is, is an obvious one. Courtois, Lloris as well. Who's your, your current, your pick of the current crop, Tom? They're very hard to separate, those three, yeah. I think. Um, 
I think Lloris is a fantastic goalkeeper, mm. and I think he interprets that role of the sweeper keeper better than than anyone, certainly in England. Um, he doesn't have; he's not as physically imposing as someone like Courtois, who's mm. who's a proper giant, but astonishing reflexes. I mean, some of the saves he's made this season, even. I watch Man United quite a lot, and, and De Gea is uh, extraordinarily consistent. I mean, mm-hmm. he makes the occasional error, but think about when he first arrived from uh, Atletico Madrid. United had paid about nineteen million, which I think at the time made him the world's second most expensive goalkeeper. He wasn't Spain's first choice, um, and he's this little willowy guy with a you know a bum fluff moustache, and he looked <laughs> he looked very you know unsuited to English football and and there were you know a few mistakes in, in his first outings and Alex Ferguson had to had to come out and defend him but since then I mean he's he's extremely consistent and you notice it less so now under Mourinho because United are a bit more solid but certainly under under Van Gaal and, and Moyes he dug them out of so many I remember once they I think they they played at home to Brendan Rodgers Liverpool um and can't remember the outcome actually. Oh, was, was it the three 0 I think. It was the three 0 Yeah, and, and the, the difference was just the goalkeepers, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And basically, De Gea saved about five one on ones, all from Raheem Sterling. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, that's right. And there just seemed there seemed to be no you know no way past him. And then at the other end, I think Mignolet made two quite bad errors, didn't he? Mm. So it was just decided upon that. Yeah, De Gea is is absolutely world class Michael some of the saves he makes we talked about positioning and all and goalkeepers being worth their weight in gold when it comes to the points tally at the end of the season but De Gea you know some of those saves he makes I know it's a bit of a cliche thing but it's almost as good as a goal if you if you will yeah absolutely yeah I think uh, I think him and Courtois are both fantastic both came from Atletico of course mm. um, and now they've got all black incredible yeah. chain of goalkeepers <laughs> right, they've had yeah. I think to be honest I think I feel like by now Courtois should be better than De Gea because I think Atletico, he was so good. Yeah. If you look at how young he is, I mean, he's still 23, 24, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but it seems like he's, his form just dipped a little bit when he got to Chelsea. I gather he doesn't particularly like England. He preferred living in Madrid. I don't know if his concentration wavered a little bit. But I think De Gea is still the superior goalkeeper. Yeah. Mm. Well, and De Gea, of course, nearly moved back to Madrid, didn't he? But then yes. that shows his professionalism. Because often when a, when a player has his head turned in such a way and it is very close to moving and some players then go on to kind of force a move through it, it can derail what they're doing at their, at their current club but De Gea you, you wouldn't say that was um, the case but but staying in um, Manchester with, with goalkeepers at the start of the season it was, it was there was a lot of debate about goalkeeping styles Pep Guardiola bringing in Claudio Bravo of course and uh, and, and loaning out Joe Hart and it looks like there's, there's no way back for, for Joe Hart I mean is Bravo the, the next dominant type of, of keeper Michael well, he's not I, had a brilliant time so far no if, I mean it feels like Guardiola wants that goalkeeper to be the next dominant type of goalkeeper I think Guardiola to be honest has been quite surprised by how many long balls there are in English football and mm. I mean if you if you go back to that first game Bravo played in the Manchester Derby at Old Trafford just an extraordinary performance he, he played almost permanently 30 yards off his line as an, as an extra centre back <laughs> made a mistake for the goal when he dropped across mm. and then later in the game got tackled by I think Rooney no he got ta- he got tackled by Ibrahimovic and then like two-footed oh, Rooney and, the <laughs> and it was almost like this parody of a sweeper keeper performance and then mm-hmm. you look at his statistics later I mean in January and February I think he went seven shots on target without making a save yeah and it really is I mean it's clearly what Guardioli wants an 11th outfielder mm-hmm. but he's he's really taken it to the next level with with not saving shots it's just quite a bizarre situation it is Tom do you, do you feel a little bit sorry for Joe Hart I mean he's Joe Hart people I think 
especially England fans, wanted Hart to be a part of that list of the De Gea's and, and Courtois and so on. But he's he's not in that bracket, really, is he? No, I don't think he's a million miles away from it, sure. but he's not. He's not an absolute top-ranked goalkeeper. He, he does have a mistake in him, and Guardiola clearly arrived at City, and one of the first things he, you know, he, he clearly decided on this well before he arrived. And you look at, you know, when he went to Barcelona, perhaps to a lesser extent Bayern Munich. Each of the clubs that he has he has coached, he has he has set out his objectives in terms of who he wants to move on, who he wants to retain very quickly. And I think part of it is is about sending out a message, Joe Hart. Has been at Man City longer than any other players in that team. Played in all their triumphs. Clearly, a very confident figure, a very important figure in the dressing room. Um, someone who gets accused of arrogance from time to time. And you wonder whether part of Guardiola's thinking. I, 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 I think the reason that Hart got shipped out is because he didn't match the technical specifications of the sort of goalkeeper that Guardiola wants to play with. But I wonder whether that aspect of Hart being this big character, you know, was a way for Guardiola to sort of say, "Well, look." He's he's bombed out. You know this is how we're gonna how, how it's gonna be from now on. But I, I do feel very sorry for for Joe Hart. Um, and you sort of wonder where his long term future lies. He's not going to stay at Torino. I think he's had a bit of a mixed season. I mean, it's, it's always great seeing British players go abroad, yeah. give it a go. Uh, you know, from what I can gather, he's he's trying his best with you know with Italian. He seemed pretty popular with their fans. Um, but he's not going to stay there. You know, longer than this season. And and what sort of level should he be aiming at? Are another Champions League club going to come in for him, or is he going to have to come back to England and you know and and, and perhaps drop down a bit for one of those sort of Europa League level teams? Um, and a, a pity for England as well, really, because you sort of thought, well, that's Joe Hart, Manchester City's first choice goalkeeper until his mid thirties, and suddenly you know that's been taken away from him. So it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see how he you know how he. How he responds, and of course now we've got we've got young goalkeepers coming through. I mean, he was already under there was competition guys like Fraser Forster, um, and, and now we've got Jordan Pickford coming through at Sunderland, who looks a really really exciting goalkeeper. So within the space of a few months, Joe Hart's future, both for club and country, you know, doesn't look quite so rosy as it did. Indeed, yeah. Just a round off, Michael, of the various goalkeepers throughout the Premier League era, who would you say was the key revolutionary, the man who really took things forward and influenced future goalkeepers? I think of everyone, it's got to be Schmeichel. Yeah. As, as Tom mentioned earlier, he, he made goalkeeping exciting. I think he was very revolutionary in terms of his distribution, um, in terms of being a leader as well. I mean, we forget that it wasn't until recently where people used to kind of laugh at the idea a goalkeeper could be a captain because they were all the way back there. But, yeah. you know, you, you look at Buffon and Casillas at international level, you don't really uh, kind of take any notice of that now. Um, and also, again, going up to, to score uh, corners, it's just become part and parcel of of goalkeepers' uh, qualities late in a game now, and that was really something introduced by Schmeichel. So I think he is uh, the game changer, really. Yeah, and we got through a whole big uh, chat on Premier League goalkeepers there throughout the history. Didn't mention David James once, Uh... so I thought I'd uh, I'd give him a little mention there, (laughs) as he was as an ever-present throughout uh, many Premier League years. Thanks very much for listening to the first episode of The Mixer podcast. Michael Cox's The Mixer, the story of Premier League tactics from Route 1 to False Nines is out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. I'm Marcus Speller. Thanks very much to Michael Cox and Tom Williams for joining me. Please join us next time when our attention turns to fullbacks. New to Medicare? 
Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com new to medicare go to myhealthpolicy.com with myhealthpolicy.com you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers start now to find a plan and apply online myhealthpolicy.com makes it easy to find a medicare advantage plan in your area including plans for zero dollars a month in plan premiums low out-of-pocket costs and expansive provider networks my decision my medicare myhealthpolicy.com 